So uh, listeners, I want to welcome our uh, special guest, Dr. Jim Adcock, PhD. He's a leading expert on uh, cold case investigations. He is the founder and president of the Mid-South Cold Case Initiative. He earned his doctorate from the University of South Carolina. Dr. Jim is a retired supervisory special agent for the U.S. Army Criminal Investigation Command. He served as chief deputy coroner in Columbia, South Carolina. He's a former tenured professor at the University of New Haven. He's an expert on death investigation and the cold case process and has, over his career, trained hundreds of detectives. Dr. Jim has published three books, one on cold cases, one on death investigation, both with second editions, and a third on cold case protocol. He has also published a handbook on how to design, operate, and manage a cold case unit. He's a fellow of the American Academy of Forensic Sciences and is also a former vice president and served on their ethics committee. He's a regular guest lecturer at the Dutch Police Academy in the, in the Netherlands and has served four years on the National Institute of Justice's Cold Case Working Group to develop a best practices guide for implementing and sustaining a cold case investigation unit. And I think our listeners would be also very pleased to know that he has a podcast series, Solving Cold Cases with Dr. Jim. I've listened to uh, a bunch of these episodes. I'll tell you right now, um, everyone is a masterclass lecture on cold case analysis. So for those of you out there who want to broaden their knowledge, this series is required listening for sure. You can find him on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. I think I got all those, didn't I, Dr. Jim? Probably. Okay. So uh, thank you so much. You know, um, in this podcast series, we uh, uh, talk a lot about the Holly Peranian case, and um, we're there's certainly going to be more to come. But here today, uh, we wanted to take a step back and just kind of go macro, just kind of talk about the big picture about, um, you know, cold case investigations and DNA evidence and victim backgrounds and, and all these other um, other things that are very important. So uh, thank you for, uh, for coming on today and, um, and talking to us. So I was listening to one of your podcast episodes and you were interviewing an investigator who told the story of a woman who felt her death during a hike when she supposedly stood too close to a ledge while taking a photo. And it looked like an accident, but after uh, investigators interviewed people who knew this woman, it was discovered that she was really just, she had a fear of heights. And that helped to later prove that her husband was, had actually plotted to kill her for the insurance money. So this to me, uh, Dr. Jim, is like a, um, a great example of what your business referred to as victimology, how learning about the victim can bring us to the killer. Uh, could you tell us uh, more about what victimology is and how it helps unsolved murder investigations? Yeah, let me let me try. The actually victimology should be done in, in nearly all the cases that are, that develop the hot ones as well, but frequently because of time and manpower, uh, a lot of the questions aren't answered, uh, and it's only when they become cold that we really realize how important that victimology is. And victimology, this victimology assessment is what it is. And it's, it's, it's a process of a series of, of asking a series of questions that delve into the person, the, the victim. Uh, and one quote that I used to, or one comment I used to get Everybody has a public life, a private life, and then a secret life. Mm. What you want to do is try to bring those items to the forefront into the knowledge of the investigator. Uh, having that, what we usually say is, is if you, to know your victim is to know your suspect. So therefore, if you do a good thorough victimology, 
then frequently your your person a person of interest will then surface as someone who might have cause or reason for this person to have died uh, your mention of money is obviously a very motivating factor but there can be other reasons as well it's complicated to do it uh, it's because it, it takes time uh, there could be you know 50 100 questions maybe uh, the questions are asked of the family of the boyfriends or the girlfriends or what I call the inner circle of people that are close to your victim and they should also probably be asked of those who are on the outer circle those that they don't have contact with maybe every day but maybe occasionally meet uh, once a month and maybe play bridge or something like that and the idea is to develop uh, I hate using the word profile but it is a profile or an assessment of the victim uh, and it's extremely critical especially in cold cases uh, and you made mention of the one there and I'm, I'm going to give you another one mm -hmm. um, somebody else told me this story he was watching a tv show about cold cases and there was this uh, guy who was married to allegedly happily married uh, decided that he was going to go fishing with his buddy and he did or they did the two guys the guys went out well he never returned home and but the other guy did and the the word the way i understand it is, is that he had drowned some way and ended up in the river and was gone the investigation sadly was conducted by a, a dnr a, a department of natural resources police officer who no fault of his own didn't have a lot of homicide experience therefore a lot of a lot of work was not done the questions were not asked and it ended up being written off as an accidental death didn't find the body but they assumed he drowned accidental death and it was over well then yeah. about 10 or 15 years later somebody somehow got a homicide detective to look at it and said no 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 we've got it we've, we've got problems with this case and they didn't solved it well it turns out that the friend had killed him and it collected a sizable life insurance policy off of his death the investigation further disclosed that the friend and the wife were having an affair and she also collected a sizable amount mm -hmm. and my first immediate response was that never should have been a cold case it should have been resolved within the first probably 30 or 60 days if the detective at the time had done a victimology had known to do certain things and ask certain questions and then follow up on them so it would not surprise me that we have several cases several if not hundreds out there that are similar situations and and i don't say i don't blame the police you've got people in some small rural areas that don't get exposed to this kind of thing on a day-to-day -day basis so therefore they don't know to do it or they're not trained to do it because it's not high priority on the sheriff's list or on the police chief's list or whatever and uh, this is one that should have been looked at more closely and 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 again and again and again that's the first thing i want to see i want to know about the victim because knowing that victim knowing why this victim was chosen why the weaponry was chosen why the location why everything there's a whole series of whys that i have to get answered and they also help me establish uh, a risk level of the victim of being low medium or high yep. and uh, the low ones are are you know the the wives the person that stays at home doesn't go out much maybe uh, medium could be once you leave the security of your home and you're on the road you have a car accident or you have a breakdown your risk level rises of course in course for the very high people it's your prostitutes it's it's, it's your street people uh you're homeless those people are extremely high risk victims yep or potential victims
Yeah, I mean that that was actually going to be my uh, my next question, which uh, the, the the different uh, low, medium, and high risk victims, and um, I think that it's one of those things that people probably inherently know, but when you kind of put it in uh, in their respective categories, it, it does crystallize it quite a bit. But if a victim, let, let's refer to say a, a low a low risk person, as you said, it's, you know, traditionally like a maybe a homebody. Somebody who um, doesn't get out of the house too often, uh, or if they do, it's it's not for very long. And I, I would assume that would also traditionally uh, could include uh, children. Also, would they be considered low risk uh, people? Uh, low risk if they got a parent around. Yes, the risk may go up if they're walking alone on the street. Okay, so that, that that's more exposure. Right. Gotcha. Um, so if a person is, um, say is a, is a low risk person, then, um, what does that, does that say something about the, the perpetrator, the, the person who. It could, it could, it, a low risk person could tell me that someone's stalking them. Someone's been watching them. It's someone that knows them. It's, it's someone that, uh, uh, who has been in and around the neighborhood a lot and seen what's going on. Yes. And that's why it's important for obviously the investigation to immediately start looking at traffic through the area, you know, uh, from trucks to delivery to to yard workers to you name it. You need to look at them very carefully uh, because it could be that uh, they'd seen this person and picked them out at one point. Yes, it's possible. So the um, the environment makes a big difference. So uh, an urban environment, perhaps. Uh, where there are more people, more uh, more traffic, uh, more eyes on lower medium risk people, versus more more of a suburban or rural area, which uh, that draws uh, different uh, different uh, conclusions, perhaps. Well, so may, it could. It depends. If you got someone in a rural area, uh, you got to figure who travels the road, you know, and and what is the purpose of the road. You you got to also think about habits. I mean. If you've got a victim that always walks the same way every day to go to the store or go to the uh, bus stop, and the bus stop's a half a mile down the road, that's creating a pattern, and that's also creating, to me, susceptibility. I mean, it's, it, it increases it, the danger a little more. Have you seen um, in, your, um, in your experience where a stalker, perpetrator, they, they might be focused on one person in a neighborhood. And for whatever reason, that, that person is the opportunity to, to um, apprehend them isn't there. And so as they're kind of retreating, if you will, from that, um, they see another person. It just happens to be somebody else who happens to be in the, in the neighborhood they nab that person. Does that, does something like that happen? Sort of like a, a plan B, if you will, for, for people like this? Yeah. Well, I, I have, I'm going to have to be careful answering that because you're going to have to know if you're talking about a serial killer, someone who has a specific psychopathology is specifically uh, geared towards a type of person, blonde versus brown hair, uh, you know, uh, skinny versus maybe someone with a little more weight on it. It depends on that own individual's preferences. Okay. And, and and they, though, will usually pretty much stick with him. But I think it was Ted Bundy that uh, one of the things that got him, if I remember correctly, was that he got off his schedule. He got off his types. He mm -hmm. lost control of his own emotions and his and his desires. And that's what got him caught. Uh, really, because he, he just sort of went to pieces at the end. Okay. Before that, he was on the money. He knew who he wanted. He knew what they were. Green River killing, it was always the prostitutes. I just, uh, not too long ago, I saw a presentation uh, done by a Texas Ranger on the Samuel Little case out of, out of Texas. Samuel Little claims he killed 93. They've been able to validate and verify 61 of them. And I saw interviews of this guy, and it went on and on and on, and he made it quite clear. I will not go, I would not choose a white woman or a white uh, neighborhood. I would always pick black girls, dark-colored girls, dark-skinned, and from areas such as prostitutes or homeless. 
because I knew that my chances of getting away were increased significantly. Let's talk about profiling a little bit here. When, when you look at a, a person of interest in a case, is their background, their, their personal background important to piecing together a, um, a homicide? Absolutely. Uh, just, let's turn that around and, and call it suspectology, development of your suspect, which is very similar to the victimology in the sense that you're going to want to know some of the same things. Yep. You're going to have a lot of the same questions you're going to want to ask. And you want to know about childhood, where they were born, mother, dad, relationships, uh, abuse, drugs, alcohol. Uh, you, you, you need to get as much of that information documented as you possibly can. Yep. So it is just as important to do the same thing with them. And then I stretch that a little further. I stretch that to the point of, if you then begin to focus on someone who you think might have the, the, the wherewithal and has been doing these cases or a series of cases, and not just a one-time thing, because there are one-time murders and they never happen again. I mean, you, you don't kill and then become a serial killer. You know, there's, it's, there's got to be some makeup. It's already there. And, and there are a lot of people who do kill and have killed once and it was out of anger or jealousy or whatever, but they not likely to do it again. And I'm using that cautiously because some may do, but most of them don't. Uh, but the, the, uh, you, you profile them, and, and I hate using the word profile, but yes, it is profiling them. And, and then you want to also look at what we call pre-crime incidents, pre-crime issues. What was he doing before the crime? What kind of things occurred in his life? Were there any stressors? Were there any things occurring that might have pushed the button that caused him to go over? And then what happened actually at the crime and then post-crime behavior. And I always, when I'm looking at a person of interest, I want to do two things. I want to know what was he doing pre, during, and after the crime. I, the, we already know what happened at the crime because that's where I start. I start with the crime itself and then look for the other stuff later. And, and, and with that, you, you do pros and cons, you know, reasons why suspect or person of interest A is, is more important than B or C or D that you may have in your, in your makeup. And you have to look at the different reasons. You have to analyze it and then selectively prioritize your process based on that. And, you know, the media and Hollywood often um, paint a picture of a, of a perpetrator as demonic looking. Sure. But uh, aren't they off, uh, more often very ordinary looking? I mean, even disarming. You mentioned about Ted Bundy. I mean, oh, yeah. he actually looked like an average guy who lived next door. He was a good looking guy. He could have he been in the movies himself. I mean, yes, he was. I don't, uh, you know, some of them, that's true. They are just everyday people that you just don't think about. That's true. But then yeah. there are some that you might look at and say they look sort of bad, but that's only after you knew what they did. I guess my, uh, my question would then be that you really can't tell just by walking down the street who no. these people really are. No, no. You know, they, they could be the most gregarious person you've ever met, uh, charming, and uh, they have a job, and they have a family, and like you said, they have that secret life. Yeah, it was like the BTK, I think it was in Wyoming, not Wyoming, Omaha or somewhere years ago. I mean, he was a family man. He had two kids. He had a job in the area. Uh, he, was, he was a deacon in his church. He was well-respected, and yet he was a serial killer, and no yeah. one ever suspected it. Things that I've been reading about, and I wanted to ask you about this, is when a homicide involves a stranger abducting and then murdering another another stranger somebody else they just simply don't know a very random uh crime have you have you been part of a case like that and and has that are those especially difficult cases to solve never never had to deal with one that was that far apart there was okay. I, I, more often than not i find a connection albeit maybe an acquaintance in a bar where they had a drink or something before that contact. If you're talking about absolute total stranger on stranger, don't know each other, never did. 
uh, I'm not going to tell you it doesn't happen because I'm sure they do, but I've had I, no experience in that myself. That would make it more complicated, though, because then even with the victimology, what are you going to know about this guy? You know, you, you, you yeah. don't know. Yeah, uh, it's not going to help you very much. No, that's that's a that's a different story to me. That's a different kind of a ball game and investigation as well. Yeah. So like I was, um, you know, every once in a while you see these stories on uh, local TV news about um, um, a teenager, for example, um, or somebody perhaps a little younger, and they're out on the street. Maybe they're what you would call a medium risk. And then there's some sort of dash cam video or not a dash cam video, those ring videos. And there's a truck that pulls up and, you know, they make an attempt to nab this person, this child. Usually it's a girl and usually it's a man who's doing the committing the crime. Yeah. And sometimes they're successful and most more often than not, they're not. They um, they don't. They're probably more often successful than you think. Now, now you're talking about child molesters. You're talking about a different story. Okay. Versus I was thinking of adults when I was thinking of the other one more than that. Okay. When it comes to children, when it comes to underage uh, people, you, you, you have a different, you have a different scenario. Yes, they are strangers. They don't know each other most part, but they're after a certain type and, right. and, and they, they, they will selectively pick their type and you're right, abduct if they can. And a lot of the research out there is, is uh, rather alarming uh, with young kids, uh, Bob Keppel did most of the research. It was really good. Uh, and it showed that, you know, many of them were dead within 72 hours of the time they were captured. But that that's if they're abducted for the purposes of murder versus just abducted for the purposes of sexual gratification over a period of time. But we are getting further out of my area. I just know a little bit about that. Yeah. But I thought it was interesting you mentioned that when uh, scenarios like that, you know, it, the victimology profile, that doesn't work as well. It's not as useful to you. It's not going to tell you a lot, but it will tell you probably where she walked, where she's been, what she does, her friends. Uh, maybe maybe someone tried to pick her up once before and she refused. Maybe that's, that knowledge has been passed on to, a, to, a, to an associate. So the victimology will help identify that, which then yeah. will tell you that she might have been picked up off the road. All right. And that's another story. Let me ask you this question. Um, what are the signs of a perpetrator who stalks their victim versus one who commits, if you will, a crime of opportunity? Is there a difference? Well, obviously, if they're stalking him, there's got to be some psycho stuff going on somewhere. There's got to be some reason you would think why they're stalking him, which gets into the background work then on your on your person of interest and your victim. Yeah, uh, she might fit a pro or he might fit a profile of what he likes or what he doesn't like. And, and that's would be a stalking could be a similar situation where they're stalking a plan B thing, I suppose. I mean, uh, it could happen that, you know, they fail with one. So they move on. But I think it was little that made the comment and why he failed. He just he would just wait until he saw another one that fit his profile. Right. It depends on how anxious they are to do the act. And how anxious they are to get in there. Now, understand with Sam Little, he didn't have sex with his victims. Mm-hmm. There was no sex involved at all. Yet he was picking up girls, prostitutes everywhere. And uh, he would his his thrill was, as I see it and understand it, and if I'm wrong, I can be always corrected. But his thing was he liked to choke them to death, and and that was his thrill, watching them die through choking, and the only sex or related type of process that might have occurred and did occur and that he would masturbate while doing it. So there would not be, but there'd be no sexual contact. It seems more anger driven than, than anything. Yeah, it could very well be. I'm again, that that's where your, your forensic psychologist needs to get in there and say, you know, figure out a little more about what you're actually driving him. But uh, that's the way he was, you know, and, and some of them are like that. Some yeah. of them don't have sex with them at all. That's not even part of the game. Now, cold cases, I wanted to talk about that a little bit because I know that's an important part of your work. Uh, on your website, you said that in, in 2016, the national average of solving homicides dropped to its lowest ever, 59.4%. Yeah. 
And since 1980, there are over 269,000 unsolved homicide cases. Uh, what are the primary reasons a homicide case stays unsolved for years or even decades? They get overworked. They get more cases they can't handle. They get put on the shelves. Uh, they go to a. They just don't get the attention because they don't have the manpower or the money to do it. That's what's happening in most departments. Now, that, that 269 now, Mark, mind you, goes through 2019, 1980 to 2019. Why cases go cold? It's just a matter of time, manpower. Uh, and I'll also tell you, if families say things and keep them moving, that helps keep the police on the work uh, because they don't want the bad publicity that they're not doing anything with someone's daughter or, or brother or sister or whatever. That is something that can be done. Uh, but to be honest with you, you get in a city like Memphis here. I mean, I mean, it was just horrible. That was all the cases they had Chicago, uh, St. Louis is the worst city in the United States for homicides per capita. Uh, it's, it's for over a certain population and so on. Uh, and uh, Memphis is going to, my, my area, Memphis, it's in 2020, when the data comes out in October, I think Memphis is going to be third in the country, for example. And I also think third or fourth, they've been sixth for quite some time now. With St. Louis, Baltimore, Detroit, pretty much being at the top. But I think you're going to see in 2020, when the data comes out officially at the end of September by the FBI, our clearance rate for 2020 is going to drop to as low as maybe even 55%. It's going to be a lot lower than it was in 2016. And then you're going to see in 2021, it's still going to be well below. It's going to be down in the 50s. Uh, it's, the, the situation is getting worse. And, and, and presently, I don't see it coming out of that right now. I think that's what's going to continue to happen for a while. And again, it's manpower. It's money. Yeah. It's, it's, it's where do you put you effort, your efforts? You're a police chief. Where do you go? You know, uh, it's tough. And this, this is a problem that is in every, every community around the country. This isn't just isolated in, in certain communities, right? No, except I will tell you, there's about five or six cities that's been this way for, for a decade. And it's hasn't changed. Okay. I mean, the top cities, like I said, St. Louis, Baltimore, Detroit, uh, Memphis, Sometimes New Orleans, Kansas City has had a rough time. I'm talking about before COVID now, okay? Mm -hmm. If you look at the article I wrote last January for the uh, crime reports, I list all those cities out. And you can see where, where those same cities are always going to be there. I, until something drastically changes, they're going to be there at the top. That's a tough one. Let's talk about crime scenes, uh, if we may. When an investigator arrives at an outdoor crime scene, um, what are they typically looking for? The same they would look for an indoor scene. I mean, it's just you're just in a different environment. Yeah. If you're outside, you, you, you probably have to look more closely for car tracks or foot tracks or, or you know, anything to indicate movement around the area. Uh, you may have to search a lot larger area than you would indoors. Uh, it, it's not any different. You're going to look for the same type of evidence you'd look for anywhere. Mm -hmm. The hair, the fibers, the, the weapons, the, the clothing, anything else that would help, uh, help you identify who the individuals were that were involved in that particular incident. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's not much different. It's just, it's, just, it's just a larger area. You might have to cordon off a much larger area, for example. Uh, yeah. in order to really get it, get a good view of what's going on and get aerial photographs, get some digital photographs of the area and so on. Yeah. And, it, and the longer that victim is um, undiscovered outdoors, the, then the harder and harder it gets for investigators to be able to call that, uh, that area. I, like you're talking about. If, you're, uh, well, if you're, you're, they're not going to be there unless they got a suspicion of a body being there to begin with, or an incident has occurred there. Police aren't. Yeah. Unless someone says there's a, been a body, someone's walking along the road, they smell something, and and it's inspected. It turns out it's a dead body. It's been dumped thirty feet off the road. Yeah. It's been decomposing. Well, it depends on where you are in the country now. 
South Carolina, body could totally decompose, skeletonize in two weeks. Uh, other areas, colder weather, it's going to take longer. If they're wrapped up in, 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 in plastic or some other stuff, that may delay the process too. Mm-hmm. But whenever you do anything like that, there's, there's going to be evidence. You just got to find it. I see. It does a crime scene tell the investigator how sophisticated the perpetrator is at his craft? Could. Would depend. It might. Yes. It depends on what's happened to them. How, you know, how were they, how were, how did they succumb to all this? You know, I mean, there, there are a lot of things you'd have to look for. It would depend. We'd have to look at different examples to see, you know, but sophistication comes. That's one of the questions you also look at when you study the crime scene is, is this a sophisticated scene? Is this done by somebody that knew what they were doing? Or was this just a haphazardly dumping of the body because they didn't want it in the back of their car anymore? Or what was it? You know, what reason was there that went on? So it it depends. You have to look at the totality of the circumstances, as I say. And um, when a victim is found outdoors in an outdoor crime scene, what does the crime scene tell us um, when that victim uh, is buried, had been buried versus maybe just dumped, left out in the open? Does Does that reveal something important to investigators? Well... Obviously, someone took the time to dig a hole. I mean, you know, there's time, uh, and 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 they spent some time there with them, and and it it just tells me that we got someone. He's definitely trying to hide his tracks and prevent from being discovered. Mm. I mean, but again, I need to see more, you know, to really get a better idea. That doesn't tell me the type of perpetrator particularly. Just tell me he was a little more cautious about discovery he didn't want her found does it also reveal that uh the victim was a um stranger to the um to the criminal or uh, somebody that they knew the, is could that also possibly be a reason why well i suppose if if they knew them they might and that might come back to them that they would want to do disguise them in some way. And, and yeah, that's a possibility, but that that's not going to always hold true though. Okay. I mean, that would just be one of many, many theories you would follow. Yes. What about the time of day an abduction occurs? What, is, what does that tell us about the perpetrator? I, I can't tell you much about that. Uh, I can, my what I've read and what I've seen is is obviously the prostitutes and the other those are more like nightly, you know, dark time abductions. And the daytime would depend on who the person is, back to your victimology and why they are in that location at that time. Uh it, it may tell me something, it may not. It may be just a coincidence. Do uh, perpetrators, do they typically act alone or do they often work uh, with another person? Or, I mean, usually we, we imagine these people as loners, but uh, perhaps that's a wrong assumption. Uh, with some of them, they, they are loners. Uh, but look at, look at the D.C. sniper shootings. Two guys, a kid and an old man, old man, he was in his 40s. That was that that was a pretty much a surprise to everybody for a lot of reasons. One, because no one suspected them to be black, but then then number two, they didn't know there were two. And now, you know, then they find out there were two. So yeah, yeah you do find them sometimes together. But I, I think, and I'm just expressing my opinion here, you know, you look at most of the serial type killers, they're 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 loners. They they work on their own. Now, the, the, the one that just walks down the street and decides, I like that girl and I want to take her, yeah, he could be or he may not be a loner. I don't know. It depends on, again, how much information do we have. Yeah. Uh, do you have any, uh, um, anything to share as far as uh, what a perpetrator's behavior would be in the days, weeks, and months after uh, committing a, a homicide? It depends. It's going to depend on the personality type. Uh, some people become nervous. Some people become anxious. Some people have been known to do to drinking, taking drugs. Some people have been known to leave town and maybe even return maybe months later. Uh, some who are usually the smarter ones 
will get involved sometimes in the investigation, like trying to help, trying to search, trying to, to assist. Uh, so, I mean, it just depends. They're all different types and they do different things. Yeah. Yeah. And drugs and alcohol, is that typically um, a very common piece? To well, I'll say it happens. I won't know. I won't tell you that it's common in a sense it happens all okay. the time. But let's some people let's face it they you got to deal with yourself and you just killed somebody you just took someone's life and if you're not used to doing this and this isn't your usual activity i would suspect it would have a toll on you uh, to a certain extent and you've got to find a way to deal with it and and sometimes alcohol and drugs are are brought into play or they don't go to work or they they've got they got a lot on their minds so and even if it's a one-time thing they still got a lot on their mind so what happened let's talk about dna um so although we're not going to talk specifically about the uh holly peranian case but this did occur in 1993 was dna evidence um in its infancy back in the back in 93 in the early 90s well DNA itself, if, if, if there's a, uh, a reference here that you could do, uh, the Brits in the 1980s were using DNA long before we were, and they were using it. There's a book called The Blooding by Joseph Wambau, and it's about, in fact, there's also a TV show on, and I've forgotten the name of it. I think it's The DNA of a Killer. It's either on Netflix or Acorn or it's one of the shows. I don't know which which is excellent if you get a chance to watch it. It's a story about how DNA came about and from a criminal standpoint in England. England was using the DNA to validate uh, uh, immigrants who were coming into the country to, because they claimed they had relatives. So they would do the DNA to see if they matched, and if they matched, they'd let them in. Then there was the killing murder in 1983, I think it was, 83 about. Didn't get solved till about 87, though. But uh, I think it was about 1983 and 84, they had a couple of young girls that were murdered, found along a roadway. And uh, they, they went to uh, this hospital, this research place, rather, and started talking to a guy who was helping the immigration folks with DNA. His name was Alex Jeffries. Alex Jeffries is considered by many the father of DNA. Alex looked at some DNA and, and, and they had a couple of potential persons of interest. He said, nah, it's not them. Uh, they, then they had a guy, and I've forgotten his name, but he, a guy that admitted, commit, admitted that he killed the girl. So they checked his DNA, and, and Jeffrey says, no, it's not his either. He's lying to you. So they had to let him go after they thought they had the killer. Well, then they went on a massive DNA sample collection process. Thousands of them. Wow. Went door to door, collected samples from just about everybody you could think of that lived anywhere near there, the yeah. two areas. And then it was up to Jeffries and his group to keep going through it and going through it. And he kept telling them, no, 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 no. And then they got one guy that popped up and said, well, I, my, the DNA I gave you was really belongs to this guy over here. And I don't remember his name, but I think it was Colin Pitchfork. But it doesn't matter what his name was. He said he didn't want to give his. So that got the police on to him. They checked him out, got his DNA, bingo. He was the killer. So that is the first uh, real criminal case that DNA was ever really used. And I think they finally solved that in about 1987. But the book is good and the movie is good if you get to watch it. It's a three-part series and it's really excellent. Yeah. Uh, and DNA then in the United States wasn't really accepted. I think the first court case was 1993 in Florida. That's because we had to get it through our court system because it wasn't an established process yet but then it started evolving and it's evolved and it's evolved to the day we've got the genealogy we've got the, the the touch dna we've got everything you can think of but even with that 
we're still only solving 40 to 50% of our cases with DNA because we're not finding it or we're not collecting it or we didn't collect it or we didn't collect protect it. We didn't maintain the sample properly or it just wasn't there to be found or we just didn't find it. Yeah. But is it a great tool? Oh, it's the best tool there is out there. No question. Yeah. Yeah. We hear so much about how um, DNA was the, the, the prime key to solve uh, some of these really old cold cases. And because as you get to a point where, you know, witnesses die and, um, you know, all these people that direct knowledge have died. So getting a confession is certainly out of the question of that after a while. Um, But DNA, it seems to be, that's the place. But understand, as great as it is, it's it's not infallible. Right. Mistakes are made. Okay, and and we just have to. But they're rare. I I will tell you they're rare. But uh, sometimes entry data entry of of the profiles are are mistaken. Uh, that's why it's important. Like when they do get a, a CODIS hit, it's important. You have to go back and validate it. You can't just assume because the your your DNA database says it belongs to John Doe. Well, you're going to have to go get John Doe's blood or saliva or swabbing or something and validate it's him because of potential errors that could have occurred before. So it had and 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 uh, you know look at the I, I've, there's a piece of research that I, I would love to do but I never will because I don't have the time. But I would love to go to the Innocence Project out of out of Cordova Law School just them alone. They've had over 300, 400 people they've exonerated due to DNA. Two things I'd like to know is, when did those incidents occur? Were they all prior to 2000? And when we didn't have DNA to identify, to speak of? Because I think maybe you'll find a significantly large percentage of them all occurred before DNA was even in our toolbox. I see. You see what I mean? Yeah. they're wrong. They're still wrong. And then they're being corrected. What I'm saying is, as we get into 2000 and 2010, how many do we see convict, uh, people being found innocent with DNA? Think about it. Look at the time of the crime when it occurred. Then go backwards or forwards, whichever. Because as technology got better, that means we made less mistakes. So the numbers are reduced. But that's good. I mean, that's a good thing. Yeah, that's good. I mean, it's a good thing. Uh, and, and But the other side of that is I would always, the part of the research I've wanted to do is to also go take every one of those exonerations they had and go back to the police agency and say, okay, your guy was in jail for 10 years. He was exonerated on DNA. Did you reopen the investigation or did it, re- or what happened? And I think the majority of them are going to tell you nothing happened. They went back to the cold case file. If the DNA identified another perpetrator, that's a different story. Because I remember we had a, we had a, uh, I was on the Innocence Commission up in Connecticut years ago. And one of the cases that came before us as a review process, the guy was convicted of rape. It was the uh, identification was the reason he was wrongly identified. Uh, there was not DNA at the time. It was only uh, blood type, and it was type O. Uh, DNA comes around. They find out it's not his DNA, but it's this other guy over here. Well, now that's that's even better. You not yeah. only know this one's innocent, but now you know who did it. So, so it has helped the system do a lot of different things, and it's been very good. Yes, yeah, there's a handful of states that have um, that allow partial match DNA. Yeah, okay. I'm not up to date on that. Okay. But I just, any, when you say partial, how do you define that? Mean- Meaning that um, they take a, a sample from a relative. Okay, now you're doing familiar DNA. Okay. Familiar DNA, now that's a little different. You're taking the mother's DNA, and uh, the DNA from the scene says, uh, uh, here's your, here, here's your, suppose it was me, says, it's well, it's not really him, but it's part him. He's got some of the same DNA that this person does, your perpetrator. So then the deal is go to me and my mom, and you find out are there any other siblings? Are there any other brothers? Anybody else out there? 
who might share that some of that DNA from the mother. And then you start looking at the brothers, the sisters, the aunts, the uncles, and so on. Right. And hopefully you find one then where you get a positive identification. And familiar DNA, some states, I don't think, I, I don't know if it's true or not. Used to be some states didn't use it at all. Right. Um, you know, my understanding is that uh, with these partial matches that um, there's a lot of ethical issues too that can be a problem well, too. There can be also ethical issues and we don't know yet because the courts haven't really ruled. The genealogy, there may be ethical issues on the genealogy hits as well. We just got to wait and see, this, wait for this to get to, because this is a new technique, new process. And I'm saying, I love it. It's a great tool. I'd use it in a heartbeat, but there's going to come a time here. I think the Supreme Court will get involved in one of these cases and we'll find out whether they're going to solidify it make it totally legit and or establish certain procedures and rules that need to be followed. You will notice that soon as genealogy came out after getting the garden state killer in California and others around the country, soon as that happened, a lot of the sites like you and me or what ancestry.com, whatever they were, all of a sudden started putting a little opt out phrase on their, on their application form where you could opt out of law enforcement getting access to your to your numbers. So I'm saying there are some privacy, potentially some privacy issues that may exist there, but we've just got to wait for it to go through the system and make sure it, it, it's legally sound. That's all. Right. They're, they're not going to stop it. It's going to be there. It's just about how we're going to do it may change. So um, this type of, uh, whether like partial match DNA or other types of DNA analysis, that is, that's um, a ray of light um, for some of these really old cases that it might have gone, um, you know, 40 years, 50 well, years. Totally. It, could yeah. be, it could be a ray of light anywhere, almost, even in a life case or a fresh case. Yeah, definitely possible. A lot of potential there. I was reading about uh, the murder of Jane Britton. I don't know if that, uh, if you've heard of that. She's the Harvard University grad student who was murdered in her apartment in 1969. And the case did not get solved until 2018. And who, who did they find? They found Michael Sumter. And what was his job or function? Do we know? He was a serial rapist. I know that. Yes, I do know a little bit about that. I didn't know that someone had been arrested, but some time ago I was, she was one of several cases that I was looking at. Yeah, it's, I, I guess what I wanted to um, kind of, well, the reason I brought that to uh, your attention was that almost 50 years before it was solved. Yeah. And they used what they, what was called uh, YSTR DNA analysis. I, I, don't know exactly how that is from other types of analysis. I don't know how the terminology is, but I think you're getting into the chromosomes and a few other. Yeah, I think apparently they ended up um, getting a sample from a relative of him, okay. and they were able to find a match through that. Well, it was like within 0.08% of the yeah. of the world population. So I, I guess um, I just to kind of end this on a, on an upbeat. I guess even if you're a family that has been waiting and striving to have um, their, the case of, of their family member who was, uh, who was murdered. And even if it was almost 50 years ago or more, um, never give up hope, I guess, because even because if you've got the DNA evidence, it's, it's possible that they could still solve the case even after everyone is dead. Rich, the main thing is as long as the evidence was collected properly and has retained properly over the years, yes. Okay. And that's the big problem with the older cases. You find the evidence was not handled properly or not taken care of. It's totally degraded. They can't do anything with it. But as to the family's hope, yes. Uh, but I, I also tell families, and I, will, I continue to tell them, you must contact your police department. You must talk to a detective who is doing these cases. And you must let them know you are interested. You want to know as much as you can and understand the rules. You want to know what's happening with this because this is a loved one that you have lost. 
And they understand that. But the more pressure you put sometimes helps getting more action. Right. The squeaky wheel gets the grease. That's right. And it's, it's sad. You're putting a lot of extra pressure on some people. You, but you got to be nice about it. I mean, I had one lady that she was just, she was cussing the police department out right and left. And all of a sudden I said, ma'am, you can't do that. I said, you have lost all, all credibility when you did that. The right. only way you're going to do this is just keep pushing nicely. Just yeah. keep pushing nicely. Right. And there are groups, homicide survivors groups around the country. And you can become part of them and they can help you sometimes too. That's great to know. And, you know, there certainly there's, a, as we said earlier, with a lot of cold cases out there, uh, there's a lot of competition for very few detectives out there working on these cases. So they got to do what they got to do. Now, and and to what I do when I do the teaching today, I, I, I say, first of all, inventory your cases. You got to know how many you got. Then once you inventory them, you're going to go through them and you're going to prioritize them. And you're going to start off with evidence, cases with evidence, physical evidence. It's viable and testable. Those are your first cases that you work. And then you go on down from there. And to be honest with you, those are the ones you're going to be busy doing all those. And you're probably not going to have any time to do any of the others. Right. Because you're going to find dozens, dozens of cases that are going to have evidence that you could work with. And, right. But you've got to prioritize your work and your effort. Otherwise, it's one flying from here to there to there. And, you know, you can't get going anywhere without a plan. And the plan has to be structured and it has to be followed. Thank you. I, I, Dr. Jim, thank you so much. I mean, this has just been illuminating. I really do appreciate your time. And and I know that uh, my listeners are going to be thrilled about this. So um, just remind everybody out there that uh, Dr. Jim, if you want to hear more about uh, what um, his um, he's up to and you want a, a master class on cold case analysis, his podcast series is Solving Cold Cases with Dr. Jim on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Check it out. Thank you. And uh, email address is fine. jmadcock at ms.codecaseinitiative. Go to the website. You can see the whole thing. I'll, I take emails. I respond to everybody. So, yeah. <laughs> I don't leave anybody out. So I, And I'm willing to talk or help as much as I can. So my information is all, all over the internet. I want to thank the Peranian family for their support and cooperation in this podcast, and of course you, the loyal listener. This episode was written, recorded, and narrated by me, Richard Price. Music is by Immersive Music. A big thanks to Brad Pierce from Starfleet Audio. And did you like this episode? Please give us a five-star review. It helps our ratings and could aid in reaching a listener who can help solve this case.